whether or not you're aware of your status or not, I want people to know that, you know, having an STI is sometimes a normal consequence of just being a sexually active person. I call that the cost of doing business. You know, you're going to be sexually active, a bug or a virus might end up in your genitals. It just happens. What's up, lovely human, and welcome to That's Exciting, the podcast. I'm your host, TNC, and today, as you heard, we are going to be talking about STDs and STIs. Let's start with a question. In your sex ed curriculum, what have you learned about STDs and STIs? I'll start. Growing up in Montreal in the early 2000s, I had a pretty sexless sex education and the conversations that were around sex were very sex negative. Sexless sex education, let's start there. In school, to be quite honest, I don't recall having a sex talk aside from this is the reproductive system, this is how you make babies, and this is also how you catch STDs and STIs. And also, STDs and STIs are really bad. As Dr. Laurie Mintz said in the episode where the clitoris a queer youth who's young and doesn't know and is raised in our culture thinks oh intercourse is the problem i don't do intercourse so i'm fine and they can catch an sti so for sex negative there was a lot of sex negative conversations when i was growing up if we dive into that brief examples sex devalues your worth as a woman and i'm gonna get to that in details in an episode on purity culture so stay tuned for that people who have a lot of sex will have stds and stis and lastly that catching an std and sti says a lot about you now you might have had a very sex positive education or very sex positive conversation or a very sexless sex education or a very sex negative sexless sex education and very sex negative sex conversations or very sex positive and not sexless sex education you get what i mean right we all come from different backgrounds we all have different conversations so no matter where you're from what your background is i just want us to take a moment to collectively reflect on the dominant narrative around sex and around stds and stis And I just want to say that this is not a topic that I know a lot about. We will be walking beside each other as I'll be learning about STDs and STIs with you. And we are blessed to be doing so with Dr. Ina Park. Can I say how fun it was to have her on a podcast? We got to debunk myths and also play a game of... True or false? I, Yancy, strongly believe that learning should be fun, which is why I created this game. So stay tuned, because near the end of this episode, you'll be able to play the true or false game. Dr. Ina Park is a physician and a sex-positive STI and STD researcher who is also the author of Strange Bedfellows. She is an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UCSF. She is also a medical director of the Carolina Prevention Training Center and a medical consultant for the Division of STD Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Park. Super happy to be talking about STDs and STIs today. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Yancy. The initial questions I ask all my guests is, what are your sexual green flags? For the new listeners, sexual green flags are indicators that you'll have pleasurable, consensual, and safe sex. I think um, if somebody offers up their status right away saying like, hey, you know, just so you know, I got tested 
whatever last month and, you know, my tests were negative. I think that's a big green flag to say like, hey, this person cares about their sexual health. They don't have hangups about talking about STIs. So for me, that would be a, a big green flag for sure. Awesome. That would be straight off the bat. Like when y'all exchange in the first few moments, when, when would it be brought up? I think like probably after there's been some, you know, sort of like kissing or whatever, and it's clear that you're taking it to the next step. I mean, probably not, you know, right as you're sitting down to dinner, <laughs> like, what are you going to order? Oh, by the way, right. my S- <laughs> I just had my STI test done. Yeah. I mean, I think it's clear. I think people know, like, are we going in this direction or are we not? Right. And I think mm-hmm. if you're going in that direction to say, especially if you're like starting to make out, you know, it's hard because you don't want to interrupt the moment. Like, don't do it when the clothes are already off. Okay. Right. Like, like, <laughs> You know, sometime between actually kissing each other and taking all the clothes off, I think is probably the right moment. <laughs> awesome. Why is there such a stigmatization around sexual health, STDs, and STI? I mean, Yancy, I really think it comes from uh, the way a lot of us were raised. And regardless of whether or not you're raised in a, you know, religious household or not, I think regardless, you know, if you if you grew up here in the United States, um, you probably received very little sex education and what you received was very sex negative and that it was focused more on disease and unplanned pregnancies and the way that having sex could mess with your life and not the way that, um, you know, that sex actually can bring a lot of joy to your life. So I think we start with that frame of oh, I shouldn't be having sex anyway, right? That's what we're taught as adolescents, I think. You know, I think if you believe in this mm-hmm. this sort of education we receive of like, it's heteronormative, first of all, and it's really like, oh, you should just be monogamous with one partner your whole life. And obviously right. that's completely unrealistic. So I think an STI or an STD breaks through that in a sense, because if you catch an STI, there is this implication that, oh, you must be sleeping around. You know, I think there's some judgment that can come from other people around getting an STI. So, you know, I think first of all, we need to go back and correct the fact that like sex is normal, human expression that, you know, Mm -hmm. as we're growing up, it's normal to be curious about and normal to want to explore. And by the way, STIs and STDs are a natural consequence of that exploration. We've been living with COVID, right, for two years, two plus years. We know we just by living, we get viruses, we get exposed to things. It's the same thing with sex. You have sex, you're going to get exposed to something. And that's just the way it is. I've heard from educators a lot that STDs and STIs are as common as the flu. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. And in fact, you know, the CDC estimates that like one in four Americans actually has an STI right now. And Hmm. so it's incredibly common. And I think... People think about it as, oh, that's like a special thing that happens to some other people, but not to me. But it is happening to you. And you may not know it is the thing. Like, especially when we talk about a virus like HPV, the human papillomavirus, it's like an easy on, easy off kind of thing. So you can have it. You have no idea and you can get rid of it. And you didn't, you know, you were none the wiser that it was going on. Mm -hmm. So whether or not you're aware of your status or not, I want people to know that, you know, having an STI is sometimes a normal consequence of just being a sexually active person. I call that the cost of doing business. Like, you know, you're going to be sexually active, a bug or a virus, you know, or a parasite might, you know, end up in your genitals. It just happens. What's the percentage of people that have a an STD and STI diagnosis? And are there like, is the statistics separate for like STDs and STIs or is it like merged together? Right. So, you know, STDs are like the conditions, we, you know, we refer to things as STDs if they actually cause like symptoms or actual disease. And then some STIs or infections can be silent and just come and go. Mm, okay. And so um, the statistics are not separated for the two of them. They're, they're sort of 
thought, you know, looked at together. And the thing is, is we really look at it by age. So like STIs or STDs are more common in folks under the age of 25, especially things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other bugs like mycoplasma. But things like trichomonas, which is a parasite that goes in the vagina um, and can also get into the penis as well. That's actually becomes more common when you're older, like in your 30s. So actually each STI has their own flavor and things like things like herpes and HPV are just super common regardless of age. So, you know, you can't really, you know, they're very different and you can't really think about them all in one large category other than to say they're really common and y'all should just get ready to get one at some point. How often should one get tested? Yeah. So that depends on how often you're changing partners. Like I think, mm. let's say you've been with the same, if you've been with the same person, you know, for a couple of years and you guys are like, well, I'm not sleeping around. I'm not sleeping around. You know, you don't have to get tested every year, but when you're younger, like for folks who are under 25, actually, regardless of your relationship status, we actually recommend everyone get tested at least once a year. And then beyond that, it's becomes like more like dependent on what you're actually doing. So mm -hmm. if you told me my last partner was five years ago and I'm about to get back out there, you know what I mean? I would say you probably don't need to test right before that new partner. It's been five years since you did anything. But let's say you had a partner and then, you know, three months later, you're like, ah, that's not working out. I want another partner. I would say it's a good idea to get tested in between new partners. And um, if you're switching partners at all, I think at least once a year is a good rule of thumb. You know, it also depends on the gender of the folks that you're having sex with. So folks that are listening who are cisgender men, you know what I mean, who are having sex with men, or if they're trans folks who are having sex with men, the recommendation is to actually test as often as every three months. Is there a particular reason? There's just higher rates of infections in those communities. Those communities tend to be tighter knit. Networks of folks, LGBTQ folks who are only having sex with each other tend to be smaller and tighter knit. And so if an infection gets in, it actually tends to spread more quickly because people are more connected. Right. I, I can attest to the queer community yeah. just, you know, but, oh, you, you've been my ex. I'd <laughs> oh, yeah, you've been, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like it's a little bit different with the cis hetero folks who are like, it's just less likely that the person you're sleeping with also slept with somebody else that, you know what I mean? That you know, and mm -hmm. like that there's less likelihood of being sexually connected, but in the queer community, and especially if you have a very particular type of person that you like to be with, you know what I mean? You could be like, I know two people that person's been with, and I've been with those two people too. So I'm just saying it can be become very tight knit. I definitely see that. Since there's not a lot of education around STDs and STIs and the way mm -hmm. education system make it seem as it's the end of the world, right? you're not going to have a sex life afterwards. I think when people hear, I might catch an STD and an STI, they might freak out. I agree. They might get stressed out. What can you tell them just to help? Like, I don't know what's my question, actually. I mean, I, I, I think I know what you're getting at, Yancy, because, okay, so we know that these things are out there. Mm -hmm. We've been taught to fear them. What can we do to manage that anxiety and still have a good sex life? Thank you. Yes. Right? And I'll tell you, like, I've thought about this a lot. And I think about this a lot also just like as a person in the world about what do I have control over? right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't control the way other people act. 
you can't control what other people do. You can control what you do, right? So what you can do is, you know, you can get tested, right? At least once a year or between partners. You can disclose your status. You know what I mean? You can use barriers, you know, before you know someone's status, which is a good idea. Or you can tell your partner, I'm sorry, we got to use barriers until I know what's, you know, until I know what's going on. You can Mm -hmm. try to negotiate for that. You can limit the number of partners, you know, that you have sex with that also, and you can space them out and make sure you get tested in between. Those are really what you can do, Yancy. Beyond that, an STI can happen anyway. I know people who say nothing ever goes inside me without a condom on it or whatever, and people can still get an STI because a condom can break. Things like herpes and HPV can go around the outside of a condom, for example. Women who have sex with women are like, I'm not even, you know, I'm not having sex with men. How could I get an STI? And I'm like, hey. It's not intercourse. It's not intercourse. It's like, hey, you know, she went down on me. That's enough sometimes. So my point is, is you have a limited amount of things that you can control, which is your testing, how many partners you have, and whether or not you use barriers. Beyond that, it's kind of the luck of the draw. And that's just the way it is. We have to accept that. All right. Let's do a little recap. So first, STDs and STIs are as common as the flu, and they're a natural consequence of being a sexually active person. Second, there's so much you can do, and there's so much that's in your control, right? You can't control how other people act. You can't control what other people do. What you can do is, as Dr. Park said, get tested, space out your partners, and also start having the status conversation with your partner partners. And it's also knowing that if ever you end up having a positive result, that your sex life is not over. And we talk about that with Dr. Park a little further in this episode. How can we initiate the status conversation or just when was the last time you got tested? Do you know what I would suggest, Yancy, is I would offer your status first. And I would say, Hmm. just so you know, I got tested last week and, you know, I was negative for blah, blah, blah. How about you? Because now you've just said, I just told you what I did. And I'm offering, I'm opening myself up first. Right. As opposed to I'm grilling you, I'm interrogating you. Right. You know what I mean? I don't trust you, which is why I'm asking you, Mm -hmm. well, what's your status? Because I think you look like you might have an STD or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It removes that by you offering your status first, which means you actually need to know your status, right? But But you offering up that you do that, that you test regularly. It's like the same thing about when people talk about what are you into. Right. But someone's got to open that door. And when it comes to STI status, it's that same level of kind of awkward conversation. So I think if you're willing to open the door first, Yancy, and say, hey, by the way, you know, I just got tested and blah, blah, blah. And what about you? Then I I think it can reduce that sort of barrier, that awkwardness. It's hard though. It normalizes it too. It normalizes it. I was hoping that COVID would help us have those conversations. You know what I mean? Like, hey, are we wearing a mask? Are we not? You know, like it's, mm, you know, it's the same. Right. Are, you, are, are we testing before we see each other? Are we not? So it's, you know, are, oh, are, you, are we using a barrier? Are we not? You know, are you, did you test or I tested and here's what I, what I had. I still think sex is a little bit special that people do have an easier time talking about COVID than talking about sex. But when I become queen of the world, I want it all to be much easier. <laughs> I just yes. I just want it to all be I just want it to all be normalized. And I want I want people to just be able to talk about sex like we talk about, you know, brushing our teeth or whatever, something like that. I've heard a lot of people say 
hey, I'm clean. Yeah. What does that vocabulary convey? Yancy, I hate that word. <laughs> I hate that word when it comes to describing our STI status because what's the opposite of clean? Dirty. Dirty, right? So, you know, that word to me conveys all kinds of judgment. I really try not to use it. When someone uses it, I actually try to, like one of my patients uses it, I try to correct them and, you know, say we talk about being negative or positive, tests being negative or positive. It has nothing to do with you being clean or not clean. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then I try to normalize the whole STI talk. That language actually came around, it's been around for a long time, but it's um, in the US, at least I know that it's been around since World War One because there were all these posters for the soldiers that were anti-STD posters. And they would say, we need to have a clean America. That's, that's oh. just, yeah, there's like a poster with a soldier and it says, we need to have a clean America and we must stamp out venereal disease, which is, or VD, which is what we used to call STDs. So that language has been ingrained in us for a long time. And a lot of people are still using it, but I feel like I'm hearing it less and less, which makes me feel really hopeful. If we talk about herpes, mm -hmm. what are the different types of herpes. Sure. There's two major types. There's herpes type 1 and type 2, herpes simplex virus. So type 1 tends to infect the mouth um, around the lips and it can also affect the genitals. So if someone goes down on you and you've never been exposed to HSV1, you can get an outbreak in your genitals and you can also get it in your mouth. And then there's HSV2, which is mostly confined to the genitals. It's just, it's unusual to find it in the mouth. And HSV2 is responsible for most of the people who have recurrent outbreaks of herpes are usually having HSV2. They're all they're both pretty common, like almost half of people in the US have HSV1. And then for HSV2, it's becoming it used to be as common as one in four, and now it's more like, you know, one in eight, one in seven. Yeah. So it's definitely less common. But still, that's still that's still pretty common. You know, there's millions of people who have both. I do think herpes is probably one of the most feared of the STIs. And I think part of that is because of the chronic nature of it, meaning that, you know, once you do get infected, you will have antibodies for life. And as far as we know, people with HSV2, which is that second type of virus that causes recurrent outbreaks in the genitals, people do shed virus. It, it looks like for, you know, even 10 years after they first get diagnosed. And even if they don't have symptoms that one out of 10 days, basically, they still will shed some virus and they may not know it. I think the thing that's tricky about herpes is that the idea that maybe you need to disclose your status to future partners and the fear of that rejection from partners that could happen is what really makes people super fearful. The other thing is, is that when you first get an outbreak, Yancy, it can be extremely painful with multiple sores everywhere and it can be very debilitating, you know, and then mm -hmm. it passes. And that first year or two years, you're more, most likely to have, you know, recurrent outbreaks. And then for some people, it kind of burns out, you know, it's, I don't really have a better description for it, but it kind of burns out and some people stop having outbreaks at all, or they just get a little tingle down there and they're like, oh, that's my herpes and that's it. Hmm. So, but people fear in the beginning when they first get diagnosed, oh my God, it's going to be this bad for the rest of my life. And for the you know vast majority of people, that's not the case. Are you able to calculate or know when you're shedding? No. That's the problem. But like only in a study when you're actually checking a swab, you know, frequently for many days in a row, do you know the pattern of your shedding? Yeah. So otherwise you don't know. Right. Which is why it's also stressful because people are like, I have no idea. Like, am I going to be 
transmitting or not. For people who are having like insertive sex, you know, where a penis is involved, covering with a condom actually also really helps prevent transmission. I know people don't like condoms, okay? Like I totally get that. And if you're saying, I'm going to try to do everything possible to reduce the risk of transmission, condoms are really great. Like for vaginal sex, for, you know, if a person with a penis has herpes and wears a condom, the risk to their partner is reduced by almost 90%. Wow. Every time they have sex. It's huge. It's less the other way around. Like if the person with a vagina and, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like just say that penis and vagina sex is like the end all be all, by the way, Yancey, of course. Like, Mm -hmm. but this is, I'm just letting you know, this is where the studies were done. But if someone with a vagina has herpes and then their male partner uses a condom, it reduces the risk of transmission to the male partner by about 65%. So it's not as good, you know what I mean, as from a Mm -hmm. person with a penis to a person with a vagina. And what is so frustrating is that I wish I could say for women who are having sex with women, for trans folks, you know, who are having sex, you know, with other trans folks or, you know, non-binary people, there's just no information. Is there studies that are being conducted at this moment? Not that I'm aware of in terms of looking at transmission in gender diverse people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I hear of anything, I would certainly let you know. Not not that I'm aware of. The studies that have been done, you know, mostly because it's easy, right, to recruit people in terms of the pure numbers of people that you need for a study. Mm-hmm. Most of the studies that I have seen have been done in cis-hetero people. And then it's gotten a little bit better, I feel like, especially with the HIV prevention studies among trans women and men who have sex with men. But I mean, honestly, I feel like women who have sex with women and trans men are often invisible from these studies, which means there are lots of things we still don't know. For someone that has herpes... Yes. That think their sex life is over. Is it true? No, it's not true. It's not true at all. But can I just say, Yancy, I want to acknowledge that it is a big deal and that it is a big deal for some people and that I have had patients who literally like they have an identity crisis and they're like the person that I was before my diagnosis and the person that I am after my diagnosis are not the same person. And so that is a hard thing to reconcile. Mm -hmm. And I have had you know, patients who've needed to go into therapy or counseling to like work on that. But people think that their sex life is over because they think every partner is going to freak out and they're never going to find somebody who is okay with it. And that is just not true. Like I've been in practice for 20 years. You will see every kind of response. Yes, there are some people who are going to be fearful and ignorant and judgmental. And there are also going to be some wonderful people out there. I think it's a matter of getting into the spaces with the type of people that you want to be with. And finding that can be, I think finding that can be challenging. So, you know, it, 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 is, it, it is a thing that people do do have fear about understandably, because I do think that everybody probably will experience some rejection or a negative response. But I have to say that I've been really surprised and it's made me feel optimistic that some of my patients and friends and colleagues who I know have herpes have had really great experiences when disclosing to partners as well. If somebody discloses their status, what would be the best response? You say, thank you for telling me is the best response to that disclosure. And basically, if you feel like I like this person, then I would say we can, we'll figure it out. We can work around it. But thank you for telling me is the best, is the one best response. Thank you for sharing that with me is the one best response you can give to that diagnosis. Don't make a face. 
check your face. Don't say ew. Don't, you know, don't ask people, well, where did you get it? Or how many people have you been with or whatever? Just don't do it. Mm -hmm. Just say thank you because that was a hard thing that they just did. We'll figure it out or we'll work around it is another nice thing to say. Yes, we'll figure it out and it's okay. Right. And if this person is a jerk anyway and you were not going to stick with them, whatever, that's fine. That can, Mm -hmm. you know, that's another reason. Like you don't have to stay with somebody just because they disclose something like that to you. But I keep telling people like, when they ask me, oh, my partner just disclosed to me, but I'm freaking out. I say, if you like this person, this is not a good reason to reject them. Like you can, you can figure it out. You can work around it. And you can say, if you are freaking out, you could just say, thank you so much for telling me. I just need a, like, I need a minute to process this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, can we talk about, can we talk about it again later? And then go out and educate yourself. But yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're allowed to have feelings about it and you're allowed to be surprised and you're allowed to wonder what does this mean for me? Then go out there and educate yourself. I would like for us to break down and address these ideologies. First, the more sexual partners you have, the more likely you are to catch an STD. Is this true? This is not true. This all depends on your sexual network because if your sexual network is very tight-knit where a lot of people are having sex with each other, then, and especially if you're if people are switching partners um, in a short period of time, or if people are having two partners at the same time, then having sex with just a couple of people in a higher, what we call a higher prevalence network, you know what I mean? Can land you with an STI. Whereas like, if you take me, I'm a cis, I'm a cis hetero woman, right? If I go out and sleep with 10 guys who are my age in my neighborhood, it's much less likely for me to catch anything. And it's not fair. Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm just letting everybody know Mm -hmm. this is the way that it is that Certain networks are just don't have as much infections in them. Even if I sleep with a hundred people, I may not have the same level of risk as somebody who even just sleeps with three people. If the sex network is dense and people are having lots of partners and there's a lot of HIV or other STIs in the network already, it's just probability. You know what I mean, Yancy? Like you're just you're just more likely to catch an STI. So the absolute number of partners is not the measure of whether or not you're going to catch an STI. And you know this too, Yancy, because. I know you know people because I know people too, like where the first person they sleep with, they get something. Mm -hmm. So, and that has nothing to do with being quote unquote promiscuous or not promiscuous. It's just, it was luck. You know, the person didn't know their status. They had sex. You know, they, it was without a barrier or whatever. And something happened. Mm -hmm. That goes with the second one I wanted you to address, which is if you catch an STD, STI, it says a lot about you. Yeah, and it's, I don't think it says anything about you other than you're a sexually active human being. He says you're human. That's pretty much it. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yes. It's human and you kind of got unlucky. You know what I mean? You just, you, that was, that was it. Now it's time for a little game of True or False. I, Yancy, strongly believe that learning should be fun, which is why I created this game. You will hear four statements and have to decide whether they're true or false. For people who have listened to my episode, wait, what about you? You are familiar with this concept. I, myself, your host, will ask a question and you will have five seconds to come up with your answer. When you hear this sound... That means that you have three seconds left. You are playing against contestant Dr. Ina Park. So keep up with your score and let us know on Instagram at That's Exciting and on Twitter at That's Exciting underscore. Good luck. Ready, set, go. First one is if you catch an STD or an SEI, 
you cheated. If you're in a relationship, of course. That is, ooh, it's sometimes true, but not always. Okay. Can you expand on that? Yes, because sometimes some STIs can actually be hanging out and not have any symptoms. So if you did not get tested right before this relationship and this STI suddenly appears, you know what I mean? You could have been holding on to it for a couple of months and come into the relationship. So you cannot pin it on your current partner necessarily. When you can pin it, let me tell you when you can pin it on them. If y'all both get tested, everything is negative, you start having sex, and then something shows up that you both already got tested for, somebody did something outside the relationship. You can catch an STD and STI from a mosquito. No. You can catch other viruses from mosquitoes. You can catch malaria, mm -hmm. chikungunya, dengue, no problem. But STIs, you're going to catch by rubbing up against somebody or having some kind of sex with them, oral, vaginal, or anal. Don't worry about catching STIs from mosquitoes. You can catch an STD, STI from a public toilet. No. Okay, someone's gonna like correct me and say, but what if someone like just came on the toilet and then I rubbed my vulva on them? I'm like, okay. Very specific. That's yeah, yeah, you wanna get specific. Yes. You'd be like, if we wanna try and you're like, oh look, I have an STI, let me rub my vulva on this toilet, and then I want you to come and rub your vulva right after I did. Well, okay. But no, it's not gonna happen. So that's the other thing that happens when an STI enters a relationship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes one partner will say, I must have gotten it from a toilet. No. Maybe, you know, it's hard with cheating to figure out what happens sometimes, but if they tell you I got it from a toilet seat, then they probably cheated. You know, and they don't want to they don't want to admit it. Yeah, there's a lack of honesty here. I know. Foreign objects, you know, like towels or towels or toilet seats or things like that are not the way people usually catch STIs. It's really usually from some sort of intimate contact. Oral sex is safer sex. So false, it's not safe for sex for STIs, only for HIV, because almost every STI can be transmitted through oral sex. Don't stop having oral sex. And I want you to know that it, it can happen. So if, especially if you're giving a lot of oral sex, performing a lot of oral sex on penises, you know, I would ask your clinician about swabbing your throat. How about a nice round of applause? So what would you say for people that are afraid to get tested because they're mm -hmm. so afraid of knowing their status that they'd rather not? I know, yes. What would you tell them? You know, I think it's hard to break through that first time. You know what I mean? Because you're dreading the results. It's just like you going to the dentist, like you feel so good after you're done that you like took care of yourself and took care of your health and now you have clean teeth. When you break through that first time and actually get your status and you know, I'm okay, I'm negative, you know what I mean? Hopefully, or if you're positive that you're gonna, you know, you can get antibiotics most of the time and get rid of anything that you have. I think the way to avoid it in the future is if you made a commitment to yourself, like I'm actually gonna get tested every six months. Like I'm gonna put it in my routine. Like making it part of your routine then just, you know, just makes it like, oh, it's another thing that I do. Like I'm checking it off the list. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a physical, I'm getting my cholesterol checked. 
checked and I'm going to get my STD testing because then it becomes less scary. The other thing that I think is really cool what's happened during the pandemic is that there's greater access to home-based testing. And here in the United States and the state of California, they just passed a law saying that the health insurance companies have to pay for home-based testing for STIs and HIV, which I think is very cool. It's very cool because Nancy, some people don't want to go in. They don't want to go in. They don't want to talk to somebody about their sex lives. They just want to get their test and know their status. And so I think we need to move in that direction everywhere. Absolutely. Here in uh, Montreal, there's a testing clinic that's called Prelib, which is basically you fill out everything online. The nurse doesn't ask you questions. When somebody asks you questions about your sex life, it can feel very intrusive. You can feel a lot of shame. And people have their opinions as well, even though you're not supposed to bring that into the workplace. Yes. So... As you said, home testing, testing centers like Prelib really make the experience great and you don't have to feel like, feel weird for being a sexual being or feel weird because you're queer and that person feels uneasy around queerness. Yeah. You can have a great experience as well. And Yancy, have you used that service or known someone that's have used the service and have they had a good experience? I've used it myself. I have an amazing experience there. It's just awesome. You, you do your own swab. They have an iPad that tells you how to do it. Yes. The only contact you have with the nurse is for blood test and payment. This is what we need, right? We need more places like this all over North America. If we talk about your book, Strange Bedfellows. Oh, sure. It just came out in paperback two weeks ago. I wrote the book in order to use like stories of both my own sort of coming of age as well as my patient stories and interviews with experts in the field to just talk about the backstories behind STIs. And so it's meant to be sort of a funny, lighthearted look at STIs and all all the sort of latest developments in the field. If you like, you know, science writing and you like to laugh and you want to laugh at me because you want to see all the the different antics I got into coming up in the world, um, I would definitely recommend checking it out. That's it for today's episode. A huge thank you to Dr. Park for being on the podcast and bringing her knowledge, her energy, and just her passion for STDs and STIs and destigmatizing them. Be sure to follow her on Instagram. Uh, it's Instagram. Yeah, it's 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 Instagram. <laughs> oh wait. Be sure to follow Dr. Park at Ina Park MD on Instagram and buy her book, Strange Bedfellows: Adventures in the Science History and surprising secrets of STDs. I've learned a whole lot. I did not know that you could not catch an STD from a toilet. I was of those who thought that you could. Yeah, so I definitely lost a point in that game. I am stepping into this journey of wanting to become a sex educator. So I have to educate myself on these topics. And that topic was one that I had absolutely no knowledge about. And we were on this little journey together, learning journey. I hope this is a conversation that you can extend with your friends, with your peers, and that you can talk about sexual health, status, in a casual way. And if you like these conversations, please take five seconds of your day and go rate the podcast five star and also leave a review. Hot Chick ATL said, I'm such a fan of how Yancy brings the information, the stories, and makes them come to life with her brand of humor and personality. That is so up my alley. I can't wait to hear more from this podcast. So be like Hot Chick ATL. By the way, love the name. Rate the podcast and also leave your review because this is going to help me have 
have more conversations like these. So thank you for listening. Thank you for showing your support. And don't be shy. Extend the conversation with us on social media at That's Exciting on Instagram and at That's Exciting underscore on Twitter. Also, you can find me, your host, Yancy, on Instagram at Yancy Sherry. That's with one R. Y-A-N-C-Y-C-H-E-R-Y. And on this note, see you next week. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Before we leave, on production team, recording, editing, and sound design by yours truly, myself, Yancy. Special thanks to Jane P for her assistance on production. The official That's Exciting Anthem by Calder Nash. The amazing vocals on the track by Mel Pacifico. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Yancy. And until next week, stay curious, because that's exciting. That's exciting.